Hi, this is Lindsay Throne Knight. She and they pronouns, and I work in student development services at TCU. And this is the Leadership from the Couch podcast from the TCU Leadership Center, where we explore questions about where our TCU values meet with leadership principles and concepts and the Horn Frog experience. I'm really excited about today's episode because uh, today we're going to be talking about leadership in elections as uh, the election day, our national election day in the US, uh, is less than a week away. Um, I've always personally been fascinated by politics and elections uh, as a Maryland native who grew up right outside of Washington, D.C. Um, and I was actually a political science major myself in undergrad um, and now studying and teaching leadership theory with the TCU Leadership Center. I often think about how these topics intersect, um, as does our guest today. So Dr. Joanne Green is a professor of political science here at TCU and chair of the Women and Gender Studies Department. Dr. Green researches, writes, and teaches on these topics, campaigns, election, and gender in American politics, and I am thrilled to welcome her to our podcast, and uh, Dr. Green, I would invite you to tell us a little bit more uh, about yourself. Uh, well, thanks, Lindsay, for having me. It's really nice to be here. Um, let's see. I have been at TCU since 1994, so I uh, can't remember exactly how many, that year, how many years that actually is, but a long time. It's at least 26. Uh, so I um, came fresh out of graduate school. Uh, I specialize in uh, American politics, notably uh, the role of um, gender in uh, elections and specifically in issues of substantive representation. Essentially, does it matter if our demographic, if our legislative institutions are not demographically representative? Uh, and so, uh, and also the ways in which um, Sorry, there's noise in my background. And, uh, the ways in which uh, our uh, the electorate evaluate candidates based on race and gender. Uh, I teach classes. Uh, this semester, I'm teaching a class in campaigns and election. I teach a class in um, uh, gender and politics. I teach classes in um, American politics more broadly, uh, research methods. So those are my, my general areas. Uh, I uh, have served in a variety of capacities at the university, and uh, it's really great to be here. So that's Thank about you. me in a nutshell. Uh, personally, I am married. Um, I've been met with my husband for, I should put our anniversaries coming up and I'm, I'm one of those um, unstereotypical women that I forget <laughs> how long we've been together. So um, I guess we've been together almost 30 years and we have two adult children and one grandson. So, um, and two dogs, I know you have at least one dog. I have two dogs and they are in the room with me. So hopefully there won't be any uh, mail delivered during our podcast is that my dog lives for having the uh, mail deliverer every day. That's the highlight for a day is package delivery to our home. And uh, yeah. since, I, since I don't go anywhere because of COVID, I'm nearly all, everything is delivered here. And so she is uh Quite, she gets quite the workout barking at the uh, delivery folks. I understand. Okay, well, we'll hope that the male person holds off. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, we got a chance to talk a little bit in preparation for the podcast. And, and I just want to start off, I let you know, we asked this question of all of our guests, um, kind of understanding that this podcast was... <laughs> Uh, started uh, during the beginning of the pandemic and also recognizing that leadership, um, a lot of leadership lessons come out of challenges and struggles. So um, I am curious, what are you struggling with or stressed about right now and, and how are you coping? 
Well, you know, it's funny when you mentioned this yesterday, I was thinking when, you, when I first got to the call with you, I was thinking, well, I'm not really stressed with anything. I think are going pretty well. I've been, I've been having a lot of writing deadlines. And so I've been working an incredible amount of hours. I haven't taken a day off in months. Okay. Um, so working every day. Um, but so I was saying, well, I'm doing good. Okay. Cause I just got my latest round into my editor. And at this moment, I don't owe anything to any editors, which is amazing. But then I started thinking, so then I, last night I stopped working and I, I, I walked out of my study and I was like, I'm just, I stopped working early today and I was so excited, but it was 6.30. And I, that's when I started reflecting to myself, at what point did 6.30 become like an early day? Yeah. And that's really where my struggle is. And, and I've been talking to other people about this too. And I think a number of people are struggling with this is when we work at home, there is just, it's this continual work it like never ends and it's not like I started working at like three and I stopped working at 6 30 I started working in the morning and I worked all day through and at 6 30 I was like oh I'm gonna call it early I'm gonna call it quits today and it'll be an early night yeah. and this idea of like the continual work day and then continually working every day without a break and having a good balance and so that that's I think my currently my my biggest struggle right now is having a semblance of balance because when I work in when I used to work more in the office I would at certain point in the day it would be dark outside I would be the only person there which I did work late not infrequently but at a certain point I got hungry yeah and I needed like food and I just you know my husband would be like are you coming home and uh there would just be a certain you know I wouldn't like usually stay up there working after, you know, 7.30 or something. It'd be like a little odd. But here I'll like, it's not infrequent where, you know, I'll like suddenly realize it's 7.30, 8 o'clock and I haven't eaten dinner. Yeah. And, and so that's my biggest challenge is really trying to find some balance to that. And um, so I'm really trying to do better about that and um, to get more, you know, balance in my life. I, I usually am really good about like structuring workout times to help with the exercise mm -hmm. and have that balance. And I've um, sort of let up on that a little bit too. So I think really getting some more balance in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. It actually reminds me, and this is pre-pandemic, but I had read some research on people who have, um, not long commutes because I know those can be stressful, but have, um, at least a, you know, 10 to 20 minute commute actually have a better, um, ability to disconnect from their work because they have that that physical distance, right? And then that gives them the opportunity for a mental distance. And when we're working from home, you just, those lines get so blurry. So yeah, I absolutely hear that. Um, well, thank you for, yeah, for sharing that. I think that's something probably a lot of our listeners can relate to right now. Um, so we also got to speak a little bit um, in, in preparation yesterday um, about some of the classes you said that you're teaching right now and um, and that you'll be teaching in the spring. And also we both um, have the opportunity to work with our women and gender studies department. And so we found ourselves discussing a little bit of the concept of um, leadership in this election through the lens of gender. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what you've noticed either pertaining to this election or more generally elections and campaigns and, and seeing that through the lens of gender. Yes, well, first of all, I wanna make this caveat in, um, uh, say this very much, is I'm, I'm going to be talking about things which if one chooses to interpret them along partisan lines, you can. 
-hmm. But the generalizations I'm going to be making about the individuals can apply to both parties. So it's not a partisan observation. It's observations based on the individual. Yeah. And so, for instance, we'll be talking about like Kamala Harris as, you know, perhaps as the you know female vice presidential nominee, which the similar things happened when Sarah Palin was the vice presidential nominee. Mm -hmm. And so, but right now the example is Kamala Harris because she's the Democrat and the ways in which perhaps she's been treated in maybe a sexist way. Uh, Sarah Palin was treated, I would say, in some ways, even more sexist um, ways. And so we'll sort of be making these comments. So when I talk about, um, you know, Harris, it might look like, you know, we're talking about the Democratic candidate, but the same things happen when we had the Republican. Um, and so uh, I hope that the listeners don't, don't listen to this with their partisan ears on and just really try to be open-minded with some of the things we're going to talk about, because this yeah. is not intended whatsoever as uh, partisan. Uh, but one thing that's been very interesting, I think, in this election is the ways in which masculinity has, mass, uh, has uh, manifested itself. Because masculinity in American politics has been long, it's long been the case. In fact, it's been so much the case that we usually don't even notice how masculine American politics is because it's like the default. Mm -hmm. And we really only started noticing how masculine American politics was when we started having more diversity in American politics because we started seeing different kinds of people acting in different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And then we started noting that, oh, there perhaps is a different way in which people can lead in politics. And maybe there's different models of leadership. And so that's gotten us a little more attuned to the highly masculine ways in which we tend to evaluate candidates. And so we've seen a lot of discussion in the media and in certain circles, academic circles for cert certainly, about the masculine nature of, for instance, Donald Trump. But what I find to be very interesting is Joe Biden is also, uh, you see masculinity in the way he presents himself. It's just a different version of masculinity. And so these different sort of models of masculine leadership, I think has been very interesting. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge though that it's white masculine leadership that a lot of these sort of I, two really idealized versions of white masculine leadership is really being evidenced by these two men. But we sort of are focusing on Trump's masculine leadership because it's more of the traditional hierarchical masculine leadership. But Joe Biden is actually evidencing a lot of masculine leadership as well. It's just in a, the guise of a different um, cover, if you will. And so it's very, I, I find that all very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and you're, uh, and, and now I'm, I'm thinking that of this too, um, as you brought up Kamala Harris um, towards the beginning, and how um, maybe uh, those female candidates are expected to maybe emulate some of those same masculine leadership qualities. Is that something that you see when you look at female candidates broadly? Well, well, in a way they are, but in a way they aren't. So for instance, women candidates, there's this really compelling research that's been very convincing that demonstrates, for instance, that in order for women to get elected, they have to be likable. Men don't have to be likable to be elected. But so, so that's important. Women have to be likable. Yeah. But what makes women unlikable, what the research suggests from voters' point of view, what makes women unlikable is if they're considered to be too ambitious or too aggressive. Hmm. But ambition and, and being what's considered aggressive for women is also considered for men assertive. 
And what's considered too ambition, ambitious for women is what's actually necessary to get ahead. Like you can't become the vice presidential candidate. You can't become a senator. You can't become even like mayor. You can't become the president of the United States if you're not politically ambitious. Yeah. Those kinds of jobs just don't fall into your lap. Mm -hmm. Somebody doesn't, doesn't just knock on your door one day and say, hey, do you want to be mayor of Fort Worth? Like you have to be ambitious, you have to be assertive. And those same characteristics as they're, if they're displayed by women are often viewed very negatively. And so it's a very fine line for women to walk because if they act too much like men in these traditional, what we consider to be good male leadership behaviors, then they're often considered unlikable. And, and we saw this with Kamala Harris. And in fact, some people asserted, I'm Democrats themselves. Democrats said, there, um, they were actually, there was a pretty big backlash about this, but when she was on a short list for being vice president, it was raised that she was too aggressive and too assertive during the debates against Joe Biden. And therefore she shouldn't be considered uh, for a vice presidential candidate because she wasn't contrite enough for how she treated him. But meanwhile, that those same considerations were never raised about the male candidates going after one another. And so this, there's a very fine line between being you know, aggressive and assertive and being, you know, bossy and unfeminine and being bossy and unfeminine is not likable. And that is adversely viewed for women politicians. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I remember reading some of those same articles about Kamala Harris and I, I thought it was interesting that people criticized her for wanting to be president and saying, we don't want that in a vice presidential candidate. And I thought, I've never heard that before, that that's a bad thing to want to be president when you're uh, in that position. So, right. uh, yeah, because being too ambitious is a bad thing. And so, and then like, for instance, like the issues of like how emotions play out too. Like men can be passionate, but women can't show anger because then they, there's a lot of stereotypes, particularly women of color have to be very careful because there's a stereotype of the angry black woman. And so men can be very passionate, but women have to be very careful on how they display their um, emotions as do, for instance, people of color, like male, um, male black men, for instance, uh, male um, black men, for instance, had to be very careful about how they display their passions as well, because they also have constraints that are put upon them by societal stereotypes. And so, and women who are considered too passionate are sometimes portrayed as too emotional to handle the job, that they're either too weak or they're not, you know, emotionally stable. And so uh, there's a lot of ways in which you kind of see gender play itself out in the ways in which we evaluate our candidates. And it's often on a very subtle level. And the, you can see this in some of the ways in which they're characterized by the media, um, the way in which they're characterized by their opponents, the way in which um, sometimes they're trying to get um, the, the criticisms that are leveled against them. So it's, it's pretty fascinating if you start just if you start looking at it with your eyes open to those kinds of cues, because it's not just politics yeah. either. I was just in a meeting this morning and they were talking, there were people on campus and they were talking about this one woman and um, somebody had essentially was asserting that perhaps she wanted to grow her program too large and that maybe she was too ambitious. And I called it out for what it was. Is like frequently when we talk about women leaders, it's one thing, fine, we, maybe that is a legitimate concern that like perhaps that is something to consider. But I think we have to be very attuned to the gendered element to this, that frequently women leaders are often critiqued for being too ambitious 
where we don't use the same critique from male leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be very attuned to how that manifests itself in all areas of our lives. And uh, I, I think there is an unfair way in which some of these subtle stereotypes sort of permeate our thinking both on a large scale, like for presidential evaluations, but sometimes in our daily interactions for women leaders, like even on campus. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm glad you brought up that, that point, because that's kind of what I was starting to think, um, both, and you alluded earlier to, you know, even in, in Fort Worth, we have a woman mayor. So I'm thinking at what level does this, does this um, kind of apply to state, local politics, and then even the thought of campus, we've got more women on this campus than men, but do, are we still seeing some of these, um, these stereotypes and these issues at play? So, yeah, right. I, I don't know if that's something that I didn't Well, yeah. Well, well, and then it's also some of it's legitimate, too, because I don't want to give the impression that, like, the, you know, like, you can't criticize women either. So it's this fine line. So, like, um, you know, you have to, like, for instance, um, yeah, so you, some of this is, like, legitimate, too. So there are sometimes legitimate critiques that you have to be raised but I think you have to also, you know, consider how, like the question you have is how does it manifest itself in, for instance, people putting them fo themselves forward in leadership positions, people who are willing to step up. Um, you know, sometimes people like, I I've not infrequently see students who are hesitant to um, put themselves forward in, into leadership positions because of fear of what others might think. Will they think I'm too ambitious? Will they think I'm too self-serving? Will they think I'm you know, too big for my britches kind of, you know, I don't know, people probably don't use that expression anymore, but <laughs> my, grandma, my grandma always said that, too big for my britches. Um, but I, I do think there's, you know, there's some concerns about that. And a lot of that is very gendered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and it's interesting as you say that too, um, I think that still plays into very um, masculine notions of leadership that you have to have a position to to practice leadership, right? Um, and so do we see that in other ways from women? But I, I think when we're talking about politics, there is some amount of you have to have a position to, to have the power. Um, right. or, or I don't know, maybe that's a misconception on my part. I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm wondering though, if you could uh, talk a little bit about um, we, we had played or talked a little bit yesterday about um, some essential leadership concepts that you've noticed in campaigns and elections. And um, as you look to the future, uh, what are some of those concepts or skills that you think leadership or leaders really need to be able to practice in order to, to be successful in politics and elections? Well, we're seeing a big contrast right now. The whole, like, you know, Biden is really campaigning on with a leadership model of, of, of empathy mm -hmm. and a more of, um, and so that's where, you know, he's sort of uh, portraying part of his, it, it, I, I was reading this article and I don't know that I like the way they characterized it, but it was interesting. And I, I think it's always good to think about things. And what the author was arguing essentially was that he was modeling a new form of masculine leadership, a 21st century masculinity is what the author was arguing. And then <clears throat> I, I'll, I'll give you what the author was saying and then you could think about it. So he was, the author argued that he was modeling a more 21st century uh, it's actually Jackson Katz. Uh, I'm not sure. He's got this new documentary that's free, that's streaming free. If students want to watch it. It's very interesting. It's called The Man Card. It's on um, 
YouTube. It's free, at least through the through the uh, before the election. It's called White the Man Card: White Male Identity Politics from Nixon to Trump. Okay. Very interesting. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can. can okay, watch. good. But essentially, you know, there are they argued that Trump is um, evidencing more traditional 1950s heterosexual masculinity. Essentially, um, it's more traditional, more conservative, it, and that kind of masculinity is more attractive to certain subgroups of people. For notably, for instance, more attractive to men than it is to women on the whole. Certainly, a lot of women find that attractive, but uh, that's why we're, we're we might have like record gender gaps in this election. Um, it's more attractive to, for instance, um, some. Um, uh, some Latino men are attracted to that. That's why Trump is doing better and polling better uh, with Latinos than, for instance, Hillary Clinton did. Mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, but he went on to argue that um, uh, Biden is evidencing more of this uh, 21st century sensitive um, uh, masculinity, white, once again, white masculinity, that um, he is... Um, uh, has this whole different model of leadership, leadership where he's um, still masculine because you want to make sure you're masculine. So he's like, he likes cars and he, you know, wants to beat the hell out of Trump. You know, that's a quote of his. And, but it's a more of a paternalistic masculinity, essentially. And, and this is why he, it's sort of the argument is that it's white masculinity because there's these rules. You have to work, if you work hard and if you play fair and if you have character, life will work out well for you. And so, and, and then this whole empathy model, but that model only works for certain people, like playing by the rules and then getting successful results. In the history of the United States, that, that sort of characterization has worked really well for some groups of Americans, but not for other groups of Americans. And that's like when you talk about systemic, you know, considerations of bias in the United States, that's where people are saying, well, we have played by the rules that we haven't created and we're not getting ahead. But essentially what that's Biden's view of masculinity, and that's what he's presenting and this whole issue of empathy. And so you sort of see these kinds of different characteristics, one of like strength and uh, hierarchical leadership. You know, I'm in charge. This is like sort of what I think we ought to do and sort of a definitive model of leadership with the more traditional view, which is being evidenced by Donald Trump, law and order, you know, emphasis on um, more of a you know traditional model of uh, status quo preservation and then you have you know make america great again harping back to a traditional view of you know power relationships mm -hmm. and then you have you know joe biden who is really presenting this alternative view of um, you know this we're fighting for the moral character of the united states and this whole like i feel your pain um, I have suffered through a lot myself and it has made me a more empathetic kind of person and I can relate to you as a human. Very different characteristics that they're emphasizing and it's going to be interesting to see which prevails. Yeah, Inter yes, I, and I think, I think most of the country is interested to see what prevails. I, this is a, kind of a, um, a side question that we hadn't talked about and maybe the answer is no, but is there anything that's, it seems like a lot of um, what you're talking about, things have followed, um, even though it's a very different election, a lot of different things happening during a pandemic, that kind of thing. A lot of these um, concepts of leadership and masculine leadership are following lines that we've seen in past elections or with past candidates. Is there anything that has surprised you in this um, campaign, in this election with regard to those concepts of leadership? 
I think it's just been a little more pronounced. Mm -hmm. um, now, masculinity and some of the gender things were really pronounced in the last election, but we expected it to be because we had uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, the first woman nominated by a major party um, uh, ever. And so we expected the issue of gender to be pronounced. And yeah. so, um, you know, Donald Trump had alleged that she was playing the woman card. And what a lot of scholars have, have argued is that he played the man card. Mm. And so we had a situation where we expected gender and gendered leadership models to be so, we expected that to be prevalent. Yeah. I, I think what was a little surprising is, is how masculinity has become so featured in the conversations, mm. even when we have two masculine, we have two male candidates. And yeah. so I, I found that to be very uh, helpful because we so often think of masculinity in contrast to femininity. Yeah. But, but masculinity in and of itself is something worthy of conversation and of thought and perhaps even of critique. Uh, and, and not that it's a bad thing. I don't want you to think that at all. But there's certain elements of um, traditional gender roles, traditional feminine gen gender roles that can be harmful and traditional masculine gender roles that can be harmful. And that's where some of these new models of leadership are really trying to break down some of the stereotypes which confine people based on preconceived notions and argue that there perhaps are better models that we can use if we are more open-minded as we move forward in the future. Mm -hmm. And so I think the way to get to that is to really have these kind of conversations, even when you talk about masculinity within the confines of two men and not in the way we did in the past. Like with, when we talked about masculinity, like with John Kerry about how he has a wimp factor mm -hmm. because that's viewing it in a not constructive way. And so I think looking at masculinity as not a negative thing, like either you have it or you don't, and if you don't, it's bad, but looking at masculinity through two different lenses, not as though absence or presence. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, well, and I like the, I mean, the hopeful note that, um, you know, if we are more open-minded in the future, we'll, we'll perhaps have a better, deeper understanding of that. I appreciate your, your insights and yeah, like, like we said before, I think we're all waiting to see um, who and, and what notions of leadership prevail. Um, Joanne, I wanna, I wanna finish by asking you another question that we ask all of our guests that um, hopefully kind of um, brings us back to the idea of community uh, at TCU and, and being a little hopeful during a time that is not always so full of hope. Um, but what's the most meaningful thing that a fellow horn frog has done for you lately? Well, it's not just one. And so I was thinking about this last night too, because you know, you prompted me that this was going to be one question. But um, so uh, in the last week, I have heard from, because of the election, so uh, I think that's what's getting a lot of students. I've heard from at least four different students I had had in class, but hadn't had in class in a while. So either they're a current student who I had a couple of years ago or students that had graduated, but I still, uh, some students that have graduated, I'm still in touch with quite frequently, but these students I hadn't been in touch with, like they were like, I had you in class like six, three years ago or 10 years ago, or one just current student wrote to me, I had you in class two years ago and something in your class made me, you know, think about you and what do you think about this or that? And uh, it's just really rewarding to know, particularly when we're in the thick of a semester, that 
something I said at some point during the class has stuck with someone all these years later and that we have a community where we can build those kind of relationships where they you can you know people still write their professors and better yet I still remember who all of them are because they almost inevitably start the email you probably don't remember me but yeah it's like I do remember you and, and so, uh, and, and that just warms my heart that I'm able to forge those kind of relationships because on my end, I feel it. Yeah. But sometimes I don't know necessarily that the students feel it as well because I really do care about my students and to know that I have made an impact in their lives, even years later, it, it, it might sound hokey, but it means the world to me. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. And I, as you said that too, I was thinking that as a former uh, political science major, I can think of two professors in particular that I still uh, share examples from the class and, and concepts and remember things that they said. So um, yeah, so that's wonderful to hear. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you sharing um, all of your insight. Um, we're going to link to the documentary that you mentioned and um, some of these other pieces that we've talked about. I know you mentioned some classes you're teaching in the spring that I wish I could take. So if any students listening are interested, I know it's registration time, um, but we really appreciate your time during a really busy time of year. Um, and I wanna thank you every, uh, thank you and everyone for joining us for Leadership from the Couch presented by the TCU Leadership Center as part of Student Development Services. You can get more information about the Leadership Center, our staff, and student development services through the links in our show notes. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or have suggestions for topics we should be talking about or people we should be talking to, we want to hear from you. So please email us at leadership at tcu.edu. Thank you again, Dr. Green. We appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and thanks to everyone. We'll see you on your couch soon.